We're in 1 John chapter 2. We are finishing a series today called Rest Assured, Being Certain of Your Salvation. We have been looking uh, at the book of 1 John through some things in 1 John that reveal to us what a, a true believer in Christ looks like. Uh, it's possible, we've said from the beginning, to be someone who claims to know God, to have a relationship with God, to be forgiven of your sin, and to not be. It's also possible to be a genuine believer, to, to be forgiven of your sin, to be washed in the blood of Jesus, so to speak, and to wrestle with doubts about your salvation and need to be assured of that, and to be able to gain that assurance through God's Word and God's Spirit applying His Word to your life. We, we don't know we're Christians because of how we feel on the inside. We don't simply know we're Christians because we think we're Christians. We base whether or not we're Christians upon the revealed truth, the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God in this book. This book tells us what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. And Jesus himself has told us that it's possible to say, Lord, Lord. In other words, to look at Jesus and claim he is your boss, he is your Lord, he is your Savior. But in the end, to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. It's possible to go about thinking you are right with God and not be right with God. The only people that are right with God are those that are right with God according to how God says you're right with God in his book, in the Bible. And so that's why we're doing this series. And so today we're finishing it. We've been talking about some of the different marks, if you will, some of the different relational changes that happen in a believer's life when they've been genuinely converted. And none of us are perfect, and we're all kind of stumbling along, but believers are on a trajectory towards Christ's likeness, right? And we stumble along the way, and we mess up along the way, and every now and then we get off the path, but God is constantly calling us back, placing us back on the path. We're constantly repenting of sin, looking to Christ, and our lives are growing and we're maturing. And today, we're going to talk about the believer's relationship with the world, and what we what we term sometimes in the church as worldliness. We'll talk about what that means. But being a believer in Jesus is strange in the world. A genuine believer in Christ stands out in the world, always has, always will. To follow Christ means that he's your boss, right? It means he's your Lord of your life. It means he's the treasure of your heart. It means you value him more than anything else. That's what real belief looks like. And to know Jesus is to love Jesus supremely and to want to follow him and obey him. And this will lead to making decisions that at times will make you look simply crazy or foolish or short-sighted in the eyes of the world. Believers see things different than the rest of the world. Believers have a new value system. Believers value things differently than their lost neighbor does, than their unbelieving neighbor does. Our value systems are different. So I, I, I don't think so. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Everything's upside down in this world to the believer, which is really right side up, right? And so Jesus kind of turns our life upside down in the sense of how we value things compared to the rest of the world. Does. So believers see things totally different. So you'll see someone who will say, you know what? I feel called by God. I feel urged by the Spirit to follow Christ to the ends of the earth and to make disciples. So I'm going to the mission field. And they might be someone that might say, you know what, I could stay here and I could make tons of money, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars a year doing surgery as a doctor, as a surgeon right here in the States. But instead, I'm going to go to this other place on the other side of the world, make nowhere near that kind of money because I can use the gifts God has given me and the education I've got now to advance the gospel in a very difficult place. And there are a lot of people in the world would say, well, that was a nice thing to do because you're helping people. But it's kind of foolish because you could have made a lot of money and you could have saved money. You could have helped your family. You could have changed your family tree, so to speak, over the course of 30, 40 years of doing that kind of work here in, you know, America. But a believer looks at that and says, it's not foolishness. That's, God tells us, that's wisdom. That's someone who's leveraging their life for the gospel. The world looks at how Christians use money. I mean, the, the average person in America, I think, gives away something like 2% of their income to charity. And I'm telling you, a, a hot-hearted believer, someone who passionately loves Jesus, gives more than that. They look at it and they think, man, that's, that's, man, you could do so much with that money. But the believer, man, they want to leverage it for the sake of the kingdom. New value system. The world looks at our moral standards. And they think, man, they're old-fashioned, Right? And so, well, no, they're pretty old-fashioned, actually. Um, you know, they've been around a while, right? But they look at, you know, the Christian sexual ethic, and they say, well, that's, that, that's, that, that doesn't make sense in today's world. It looks a little bit crazy. The idea of um, not having sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. The, the idea that marriage is for life, the idea that, um, that, you know, just basic morals, right, that are taught in the scriptures, okay, um, the world today would look at it and say, hmm, it's foolish. Some would look at it and say, it's bigoted. Some would look at it and say, it's wrong. They have a different value system in the world around us. Now, if Jesus is your Lord, if he's your treasure, you're not going to fit in then. If you value things, if, if, if the way you look at money is different, the way you look at family is different, the way you look at marriage is different, the way you look at your job is different, if all those things are different because you see it through the lens of Jesus being your Lord, then you're not going to fit in perfectly in this world. You're not going to always have smooth sailing. You might have heard it said before, you've got three new enemies the moment you believe the gospel. The world, the flesh, the devil. We're talking about the first one today. Yeah, yeah. Things sometimes get harder. <laughs> when you become a Christian, because you begin to swim upstream. And in 1 John, the Apostle John tells believers, tells us believers are marked by a different relationship with the world system than other people in the world have. This swimming upstream, if you will. So look with 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. We're going to look at a couple of other places that will be on the screen for you in 1 John, but this is our main text. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And I'm going to read there starting in verse 15. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we see a command there in verse 15, right? A command filled with a warning. He says, do not love the world. That's cut and dry. 
And if you read that and you're just kind of a casual observer of the Bible, um, if, you, if you've never really uh, studied this particular topic of, of, of what John's talking about here, that phrase is probably very confusing. What do you mean, do not love the world? The most famous Bible verse in all of the Bible is what? For God so loved the world. Why is God telling me to do, not do something that he does? That's what we would think, right? Do not love the world. Are we supposed to love the world? Well, when John speaks of the world here, when the Bible speaks of the world in the New Testament, it speaks of it in different ways. And when John is speaking of the world here, you have to take it in the context of what he means in the book of 1 John. He is not speaking of people. He's not saying do not love the people of the world. He's not speaking of um, buildings and geography. Do not love the city of Orlando. Uh, That's not what he's saying either. He's not saying do not love Disney World. He's not saying do not love Universal. Do not love the place where you work. Do not love. That's not what he's talking about. John's not saying it's wrong to love your lost friend. He's not saying you have to wear a potato sack and delete all your music and not have a television in your home. And he's not saying any of those things. What what is he saying? He's not he's not saying you have to go live in a convent and get away from the world. What's he saying? John is speaking of a system, a standard that is marred by sin and brokenness. So when he speaks of the world here, and as the Bible speaks of it in the book of James, and, and, and Paul speaks of it this way in Romans, when he speaks of the world here, he means a world system that is marred by sin and brokenness. The world system that he goes on to say in chapter 5 is ruled by Satan himself. It's a system filled with values, beliefs, and standards that are anti-God, that are opposed to God's will and God's way. It's a system that seeks to crown self as king. You see it at play in the culture. He's not talking about the culture, but you see it at play in the culture many times, okay? And so it's just anything that's opposed, if you will, to God. So there's a world system, a standard that exists, a sinful tide that is opposed to God, and it colors everything in the world. It colors everything from entertainment to business ventures to the way many people do family and and view moral uh, ethics. It colors the way uh, people do their finances. Basically, it's the stench, if you will, of the fall. It's the, the residue of sin. It's, it's, it's all that is opposed to God and His will. It's the way of thinking and the way of doing life that's not in accordance with the will of God. Uh, I love this quote from Kevin DeYoung, another pastor. He says, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look good and righteousness look strange. So when you, that's, you see that at work in the world around you. Sin looking good, righteousness looking weird and strange. That's worldliness. That's the work of Satan, not the work of God. That's what he's calling us not to love. Not to love what makes sin look good and what makes righteousness look strange. John says, do not love the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. He's saying, in other words, you cannot love the world and love God. at the same time. That's what he means. You can't give yourself to both. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. A divided heart is just that. It's a divided heart, right? It's not a heart wholly given. And so you can't really love God if you love the world. To love the world is to be given over to the world. It's to allow your passions to be directed towards it, guided by it, to treasure its way over God's way, to do life according to its will instead of God's will. Your heart is directed or buy something for someone. Everybody says. My heart this morning as I stand before you, it, it, it's being directed. It's, it's being swayed by something or someone, either by God 
or by the world, generally speaking. The question is not, have you ever loved the world? Have you ever been a lover of the world? Have you ever been someone in love of the world? That is not the question, because the answer is yes. Every single one of us, at some point or another, was in love with the world and in enmity with God. The question is, have you been converted out of love for the world and into love for God? That's the question that John's laying before. He's saying, listen, the believer has been converted out of love for the world and into love for God. That's why he says, don't love the world, because if you do, you prove that you don't love God. You don't love God. John then explains why if you love the world, the love of the Father's not in you. He says, it's because all that's in the world is not from God. It's not of God. It's of the world. In other words, you can't claim to love God, but be in love with all the things that are opposed to God and that God's opposed to. And the world system's opposed to God. Let me read to you from James 4.4. 4. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote, wrote the book of James. Chapter 4, he begins to deal with worldliness there in his book. And he says in verse 4, he, he calls these people, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's war with God. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you want to be a friend of the world? That's fine, but just know you gain God as an enemy when you gain the world as a friend. It's just like John, he's showing, man, these things don't go together. <laughs> they, they don't belong together. They're not running parallel. John then tells us what makes up the world. To be worldly, to love the world, is to be given over to these things. He says it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. You could broadly put these in the two categories, self-seeking and self-boasting. In other words, it's all self-oriented. Instead of Jesus being king, I'm king. Instead of Jesus being Lord, I'm Lord. So let's walk through them. What is the desires of the flesh? Well, Paul talks about the desires of the flesh as well in the book of Galatians. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says that in Galatians 5.16. Then down in verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's how these desires work them their way out. Immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, <laughs> rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those given over to the flesh and the desires of the flesh, they are not going to inherit the kingdom. John is simply lining up with Paul. Scripture interpreting Scripture. The New Testament lines up, right? Different authors, different books, really one main author, the Holy Spirit, and it all lines up. He's saying, listen, the way of the world and the way of the Spirit are different. It's the way Paul said it. And John's saying the way of the world, loving the world and loving God, they don't go together. This is a general term here when he says desires of the flesh. It's, you might call it a general term for sinful cravings. The word for desires or lust in some translations it is said is really not a positive or negative word. It can be positive, it can be negative. Just like desire can be. A desire can be good or it can be the bad. The word for flesh is the same way. So you have to look at context and determine is this sinful desire or good desire? And since it's not from God, he says, and you can't have it and love God, we, and it's a craving, a desire we're finding out that is, in fact, sinful. And it's related to our flesh. This may here specifically, as one person put it, refer to normal appetites that are warped by the sin. In other words, something like hunger becomes gluttony, or sex that becomes sexual immorality, or some form of what could be a pure ambition that becomes just selfish ambition. An example... 
the key one of desire of the flesh given throughout the New Testament is that is neutral is sex. Sexual desire is not a bad thing. Sex, though, is sin, has been tainted by sin by the world, and the world's way of looking at and viewing these things is now sinful. And it's about seeking pleasure without honoring God, about obeying God, and about glorifying God. It's not about those things anymore. And it hasn't been since the fall. That's not something that came about in 2015. That's something that came about in like a long, long, long time ago when they first bit the fruit, okay? Ever since then, people have been tainting and warping God's design for them. These are examples of desires of the flesh. Base cravings that are warped by our sin, and people that love the world feed that. They, go, they move according to that. Also, desires of the eyes. Some say this is a, a subcategory even of desires of the flesh, but these are clearly sinful desires that relate to seeing something and desiring it. Lust, coveting, greed. I see it. I got to have it. Much of the temptation we face in this world is put before our eyes. We see something we want. One person said yeah, that, the, that the first category is more of an internal thing, and this one's more of an external thing. One comes, it's like inside, and you, it's like this turmoil. One, you see something, and then it arises something from within you to want that money or that covet, that thing that that person has or whatever it may be. The desires of the eyes. Both of these categories are self-seeking, though. You see that? They are sins of want and desire. To seek to give self what self wants. More money, more power, more sex, more control. And then he has another category that seems kind of a little different. Pride of life. This is about self-relying, self-trusting. This is about trusting in your own resources, your stuff. It's about boasting even in your possessions. It's hoping in the things that you have and the things you've attained and the things you can do. This person has their hope in the things of the world, what they have, what they've attained. They don't look outside themselves for refuge. They provide their own refuge. They trust in themselves. Now think about it. Think about how our fallen world operates. Just think about advertising in our world today. We, they many times will appeal to base cravings. And many times, one's warped by the fall. They use sex, for instance, to sell stuff. Or they appeal to you through the desire of the eyes or they make you think if you have this thing your life will be awesome right pride of life i remember hearing years ago that when when a salesman tries to sell you a car one of the, the less like the basic main things that any salesperson would do is you want to get the person to imagine their life with the car right imagine if they had it and their life would be better if they had this new car so what do they want you to do drive it right so you sit in it behind the wheels, why they open the door for y'all sit sit down there. Would you like to drive? Sometimes they'll even tell you this, you want to take it home? Bring it back tomorrow? They want you to envision it in your life. They want you to smell the new car smell, right? It smells so much better than your car. If you're, you know, it smells like leftover kid food. It's under a seat somewhere that you can't find. Ew. You begin to think, oh man, my drive to work would be so much better with this. Our lives would be so much more organized with this would be so much better than, and if you'll notice, I heard somebody say this so that I thought it was a great point. People tend to begin to just go buy things when they get bored, right? So I, when you, you kind of get bored, you kind of get in a rut, you you know what I've been wanting? Blah, 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 whatever it is, and you go buy. Depend, and depending on your budget determines what size item you impulse buy with, right? It might be $50, it might be $500, it might be $5,000, that all depends on your budget, right? But... What is that? That's the world of trying to appeal to us 
through just base cravings, desire of the eyes, pride of life, and us thinking in our flesh, you know what? My life would be great if I just had this. Man, that is the pride of life tempting you there. It's, you're, it's a general rule. Your life's not going to be that much better. You know, I heard years ago, and I won't say the amount because I could have been wrong on what it was, but there's like a, a very base level of income that, that you would most people in this room would not even consider that high, that once you have it, no matter what you achieve beyond it, you don't generally get happy. There's just kind of a base level. Once you get there, that even if your salary doubled, your life just doesn't change that much. Right? But we always tend to want to believe it will make everything better. And that's what we see. It's how the world, the world knows this. So we have marketing designed around it. So it's, it's the air we breathe in this world. It's the way it works. But believers have been changed on the inside, and so we are supposed to be able to spot that. We fall prey to it from time to time, but we're supposed to, the Holy Spirit's in us. We have a new heart. We're supposed to be able to spot that and kind of go, you know what, I don't really need that like I think I do. What I, really, all I need is Jesus. That's what his word tells me. As long as I have Jesus and I have a right relationship with God, he's going to provide me what I need if he wants me to have that. He gives me all things to enjoy. There's some level of it there, but I'm a steward, and it just changes it. Versus the person that's just like, well, yeah, I'll go over here. Yeah, I'll go over there. And it's just whichever way the world, whichever side it throws the bait on. We just swim from one side to the other. All people are tempted. But the love, and all people give in to temptation. But the lover of the world loves, lives by, breathes this. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is how they operate, not the word of God. They love their immoral lifestyle more than they love God. They love abusing substances more than they love God. Their craving for the things of the world like money and power and comfort and security and pleasure are stronger than their love for God. So rather than obey God, they constantly pursue the world's way. And they would rather hope in this life than in God. They would rather leverage their life and their hope for the things they have and possess than for the eternal things they cannot see. They boast in their stuff. They hope in their stuff. They trust in their stuff. And the one thing that they can imagine would crush them the most is to lose their stuff. John then warns, the world is passing away. It's passing away. So are its desires. And the desires of the flesh and the eyes, the pride of life. The world and all the possessions you boast in or hope in are passing, quickly fading. But it's the one who he says does God's will, who obeys God. It shows the fact they love God, not the world. They are the ones. They are the ones who abide or remain forever. So souls of man, God's word, those things are eternal. Everything else we see around us is temporal. The chair you sit in, the clothes you're wearing, the building around us, these things are all going to go away. But the people that you sit with this morning, the, the word that you may be holding in your hand or on a tablet or a smartphone or look at on the screen, that is eternal. And believers know this, and we want to leverage our lives towards these things. Let me give you some basic takeaways to apply this idea of how we are to relate to the world. Number one, love of the world is a spiritual indicator. That's the main thing I want us to get this morning. The love of the world is a spiritual indicator. What you love reveals your, your spiritual nature. We've already seen that. John said if you don't love your brother, right, you've not been born of God. Or if you hate your brother, you've not been born of God. Well, whether you love the world or not, it's a spiritual indicator. Let me ask if you rounded the if you went shopping today at Publix and you rounded the corner on aisle nine and there was nobody on it but one man collapsed on the floor and he wasn't moving, 
what would you probably do? Other than call for help, you might go over and you'd probably check, is he breathing? You'd probably check, is there, is there a heartbeat? Is there a pulse? That's like two basic things that you would begin to do just to kind of know what? Is he living, right? You're looking for indicators of life. And John is telling us, here's an indicator of whether you're alive spiritually or not. Do you love the world or do you love God? Would you rather have the world or God? Is God the one who leads you or the world the one who leads you? Is Jesus Lord of your life or is, are you the Lord of your life? Do you give yourself over to sinful desires or are you constantly trying to yield yourself over to the Spirit of God? It's a spiritual indicator. Spiritually alive people love God, not the world. Remember, love is more than simply a feeling or a longing. We talked about that last week, I believe. It involves action and doing. You serve what you love. You commit to what you love. You do for what you love. You guard, you protect, and you actively treasure what you love. You're either committed to and serving God, treasuring God, guarding your relationship with God, or you're doing that with things in this world. And you're committed to it, and you're guarding it, and you're protecting it. You've got a wall up. And it's what you run to when you're hurting. It's your refuge. Now listen, one way you can tell worldliness is it will manifest itself in idolatry. That's one of the ways it indicates your spiritual nature is idols pop up. And idolatry is, is basically giving to anything other than God what only belongs to God. Okay? So... When you give worship to God, to something else, or ultimate allegiance to something else, ultimate priority in your life to something else other than God, preeminence, supreme devotion, that is idolatry. And this plays out at the end of the book when John warns against idolatry. Now, it seems random. We're about to read it. It seems random. You're like, this book in 1 John, he all of a sudden starts talking about idolatry. He hasn't mentioned it anywhere else. But it's not random. Because if you love the world, you will commit idolatry. Right? Because that's what the world does. We swim in idols all around us. Look at what he says in 1 John 5, 19 through 21. The last three verses of 1 John, how he ends the book. He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that's that world system again. Right? The world system lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That's an important word. And we are in him who is true. And in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. Who's the true God? Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What are idols? What is false? Keep yourselves from what is false. As John ends the book, he's saying, believers, you're, you're from God, right? You're not from the world. You're from the Father. You've been called out of the world. Then he says, we have an understanding to recognize something. What is true from what is false. Over and over again, what is true, who Jesus is, the true God. Then he says, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from what is false. Now in context, there are false teachers that were, that were there that day that left the church, left the faith, left the gospel, no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God, no longer believe Jesus is the Messiah who alone takes away sin, but they still claim to know God. They are, in effect, idol worshipers. Okay? They're committing idolatry. You can't, you, you can't not love and worship Jesus and love and worship God. And the temptation faced by them was at its root, idolatry is what's happening here. So in a sense, it's the essence of the whole book. That and worldliness, because by leaving the church and leaving the faith, they have entered into worldliness, these false teachers have. Opposed to God. Offering an alternative to the true God. Now, Worldliness manifests itself in various ways 
always opposed to God. Various ways that, we, that, that the idols of worldliness manifest itself. Self-ruling ways. Idolatrous ways. For instance, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh will lure you into making sex or pleasure or power or some other craving an idol. It's what you must have. That if you don't have that, you can't be happy. You'll sacrifice for that idol. You'll lose your family for that idol. You'll give things up for that idol. The lust of the eyes will reveal what your idols are. The things you see and must have. The things you will devote yourself to get. Pride of life reveals that you have in fact made your achievement, your success, your money, your resources, or your place in life, your comfort, your security, or whatnot. An idol. Because you boast in it. We're supposed to boast in Christ and Christ alone. So when we look at our lives, and when you look at your life, and you see that you love your job, or your resources, or your achievements, or your own personal pleasure more than you love God, you know you are committing idolatry and you've fallen over into the love of the world. Not father. So let's be clear this morning, if you're uh, for us believers this morning, we too can be tempted towards worldliness and idolatry. We erect idols in our hearts. The idolater and the lover of the world are given over to these as a habitual pattern of life, continually. But even the believer can wander from God in a season, commit idolatry in our heart, become infatuated with something in the world. So we have to pause and ask ourselves on a morning like this, what has my attention more than God this morning? What is pulling me away from time with God, from time with God's people? What is competing for my affections? What am I prone to hope in, to trust in, to help me feel whole, complete, at peace? What makes me feel validated? This is where idols are built. Those places in your heart. That is where the love of the world will beckon you. And you cannot love God in the world. I like the way John Popper says it. He says, love for the world pushes out love for God, and love for God pushes out love for the world. Number two. Second takeaway, beware trading eternal joy for temporary pleasures and treasures. That's what's at stake with worldliness. Trading eternal joy for temporary pleasures and treasures. John gives a very clear warning that it's easy to miss, though, in all the other information in these verses. But there's a contrast, right, between the person of the world and the believer. The, the world is passing away. Its desires are passing away. The believer, the believer who does the will of God abides forever continues forever in relationship with God. The, the things worldliness offers, the things that the love of the world offers, are powerful temptations, but they're all passive. They're all fleeting. They're all temporary. You can feed your desires of the flesh your entire life, but in the end, they won't offer you anything that lasts. Not power, success, you name it. And the things you look at and long for things you covet and crave and lust for, whether that be a person, a house, a job, or a lifestyle. It's not going to last. And it can't, the satisfaction it will give you, it can't last. It's an empty, broken well. The stuff, the achievements, money, lifestyle you have attained, it's not going to last either. And we have to be careful or we will leverage our lives for something that's Fleeting and but a vapor. Feel ripped off in the end. Feel like we got a raw deal in the end. 
I remember uh, just this weekend, we, were, we went to Disney World, getting ready to start school this week, so we went to Disney World on Friday, and I did something I never do at Disney World. I stood in a line. I don't do that. You go, to, go to Disney, you know, you get three fast passes. What we call that in our family is these are the three things you get to ride today. <laughs> we don't stand in lines unless it's like a walk-up thing, but there was one ride that we had one little roller coaster there that we had not ridden, I had not ridden, Canada had not gotten to ride. It was an 80-minute wait, it said, and I said, we got some time. Eden was getting her first haircut and all that. I said, let's go, we'll, we'll stand in this line. So we go, we stand in the line. And you ever stood in the line with a five-year-old for over an hour? And uh, I don't know how many times I got asked, will you hold me? Will you this? Will you that? How much longer? You know. So we're standing there, we go through the line, and finally we get through it. It was about an hour and ten minutes, so it was a little bit shorter than what it said. We get in the little ride, which was a very, very tight fit, by the way. And, uh, and the roller coaster starts, right? And I remember I'd gotten a text from Christy, hey, where are y'all, you know, how was the ride, you know? Get the roller coaster, put the phone away. Roller coaster, get off, get off. There's a text from Christy. Three minutes had passed. I was like, I waited an hour and ten minutes. And like three to four minutes, and it's, it's over. Like, we're going to it immediately. Can we do that again? No, you know? No. <laughs> We cannot do that again. You feel ripped off. He's like, that's a raw deal. That's a lot of standing in line for a very short, and it's over. And it was fun, and it was gone. I'm telling you, the world is full of people who are in the end going to go, man, it went fast. It's over. It's over. I don't get to take the car with me, the, the savings account with me. You mean an eternity? You mean an eternity? Senior vice president's not a big deal. No. But but I worked so hard. I learned so much. I spent tens of thousands of dollars on education. I did this. I did that. I built a life. I built a legacy. But if it's built on the things of the world, it's going to pass away. And in the end, you will feel like you got a raw deal because you did. You did. If there never was that time. The Spirit of God stirred your heart and you saw the beauty of worth in Christ was greater than that of the world and you turned from your sin and you turned to Christ and you went from being a lover of the world and a lover of God and you begin to live for things that last forever. 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 The person who's hoping in the things of this world is living for now and now alone. Do not trade eternal joy for temporary pleasure and treasures of this world. If you want forever, if you want a quality of life that doesn't end, if you want to have everlasting pleasure and joy, it's found, he says, in the will of God. In the will of God. And the will of God is that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, died in your place and rose again as the Son of God, and to commit your life to Him and to obey Him. That's God's will for you. And believer, if you find yourself wandering towards the way of the world, you need to remember, <laughs> it will not last. And when you have to choose between the things that are going to last forever, like people, God, His Word, and the things of the world, which is everything else that's going to go away, choose what's going to last. Number three, and finally, the only way to defeat worldliness in our life is by faith. It's the only way to kill it. It's the only way to defeat it. It's the only way to walk in victory. And that is found in 1 John 5, 4, and 5. At the last chapter of the book, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So, we don't love the world. We overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Those born of God are those that overcome the world. That's the believer in Christ. The unbeliever loves the world. The believer overcomes the world. How? Our faith, to be specific. He says it's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, I don't want you to think it's some generic faith. Right? You, it's not a generic faith. It's, it's the object of the faith is important. He says it's the one who believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. See, the believer is an overcomer because their faith is in the one who overcame. Only Jesus has faced the temptations the world has to offer and has said no to fight ever soon enough. Lived a sinless life. Never gave in to temptation. Never failed. And laid down his life for us. The ultimate victor who took it up again. And we who are trusting him share his victory. And the Holy Spirit resides in us to help us live out that victory on a daily basis. Resisting the desires of the flesh, eyes, and the pride of life. And when we renounce the lies of the world, when we turn from our idols, forsake loving the world, and by faith turn to Christ, we are free from worldliness and transformed into someone who loves God. And if your faith is transferred from self to Jesus, your love will be transformed from the world to God. One commentator pointed out how for John's original audience, it was through holding to their faith, or persisting in their faith in Christ, that they would overcome the false teaching of the heretics. That's kind of how that applied to them. And that's how we still overcome. It's not just a one-time faith, ongoing, persistent faith over whatever the world throws at us, whether it's a false teaching to lure us away from Christ or something of the flesh or something of the desires of the eyes or whatever it may be, we persist in faith. A faith that doesn't continue, that doesn't persist, can't overcome. A faith that only seems to exist on a Sunday morning or only seems to have existed for a moment in time when you were a kid, a faith that, does, that doesn't exist where you live life and do the battle and where you battle temptation and make plans and leverage your days, that faith cannot and will not overcome the world because that faith hasn't saved your soul. It's when we persist in faith in the true God, in the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we will refuse to conjure up idols in our lives to false gods. We'll shun the false as we hold on to the truth. It is the one who with the un, with a converted heart who is saved through faith in Christ by grace that has a new heart that loves God and doesn't love him. And we have now a greater passion and a greater love. And the way we don't love the world is because there's something we love so much more. So much more. We have a greater desire, a greater affection, a greater passion. And that comes by faith. And if, as a believer in Christ this morning, if you want to kill worldly desires in your heart and your you make war on my faith. You apply the gospel. You trust that Christ is better. That his way is better. That he knows better. That he in himself is good and better and more rewarding than what the flesh or your eyes and what they see or what your life has attained. That Jesus is better. And you believe that by faith when you face the temptation that the world or Satan throws at you. And by faith you allow the spirit of God to kindle in your heart an increasingly greater passion and love for the Lord Jesus. Let me give you an example. When you're tempted to trust in the resources of this world, put confidence in the things of the flesh, remind yourself that Jesus alone can save you, that he alone can satisfy you and sustain you, and then believe that <laughs> and act on that. that. 
That's what temptation that it is, is in the end. Ever since the beginning, it's been a battle over whether or not you'll believe God is good and enough. Is God good? Is God enough? Is he better than this? Adam and Eve faced it. They failed. Jesus faced it. He succeeded. And through Christ, we can succeed and resist the temptation that the world throws at us. You fight sinful desire, better, greater, purer desire, greater love by believing by believing in your heart of hearts that Jesus is better. So if today you're still in love with the world, it's a mark of unbelief. It's a mark of unbelief. Believers love God, not the world. But if your heart and life are still given over to the way of self-seeking, self-relying, the idols of this world, then you need to be born of God. And there's good news. You don't have to continue in that way that's going to perish. You can have eternal life. You say, I've been in church for years. That's great. You need eternal life if you don't have it. You say, but I made a profession when I was 10. What will it say if I admit all these years later that I am a, not, not a Christian, that I need to be saved? It will just say that, wow, God has been patient with you like he's been patient with me. Do you know the Lord? Do not be deceived this morning as we bring this series to a close. And believer, you need to believe this morning because we all wonder and we all stray. You need to believe you are an overcomer. As Paul says, you are more than a conqueror through Christ. That's you. And if you have taken steps towards worldliness and been lured that way, you need to repent. You're not living like who Jesus says you are. And you need to get in line with your identity with Christ and pursue Christ to, by faith, once again, turn to Christ, renouncing the things of the world, the temptations of the world, believing that, yes, just as you believed from the moment you first were converted, that, yes, Jesus is better. 